welcome to Royally Screwed. My name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're taking a look at the life and reign of Queen Ranavalona I of the Marina Kingdom on the island of Madagascar. Ranavalona is most well known for her staunch isolationist policies for her kingdom, which during her reign encompassed basically the entirety of the island of Madagascar against the other tribes of Madagascar and, possibly more importantly, the nations of Europe who are looking to gain a foothold on the island. While her reputation among the people of modern-day Madagascar is fairly mixed, it wasn't too long ago where anyone who knew about the 19th century queen would say she was an evil despot whose reign was basically an unfortunate U-turn in Madagascar's history. While I'll definitely get into why her reign has some supporters in the modern day, it's pretty easy to outright say at the top of the episode that this woman was not a good person. Or at the very least, her policies were hostile to basically everyone except herself. For a bit of a teaser, within six years during her reign, the population of Madagascar decreased to half of what it had been. That dip was not due to people choosing to leave the island. So, how exactly does someone like that come to power? And why would she feel the need to take such a strong stance against the world that it would cause mass death among her own people? And what does a buffalo hunt gone extremely wrong have to do with any of this? Well, you'll just have to listen to the episode to find out. So, without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the island of Madagascar in the 19th century in... Queen of the Lonely Island. In the background history lesson, let's talk about the Marina Kingdom, the kingdom Ranavalona would come to rule. We'll also look at the relationship Madagascar had with Europe at this point in history. But let's start with the Marina Kingdom. The history of the Marina Kingdom is almost intrinsically connected to the history of humans on the island of Madagascar as a whole. We start off the kingdom's history with the Vazimba people. The Vazimba were said to be the first settlers on Madagascar, and it's believed they came from the island of Borneo. Borneo is an island off the coast of Southeast Asia that is split between three different nations, Brunei, Malaysia, and Indonesia. According to some stories told on Madagascar, the Vazimba may have been pygmies, a group of people much shorter than the average population, though there's not any firm historical or archaeological evidence to back this up. It's believed they came to Madagascar before or around 300 CE. They eventually settled further within the island and started their own civilization. Centuries later, enter the Hova people. These were possibly people from mainland Africa who had settled on the southern side of the island before eventually moving further north and forming villages alongside the Vazimba. In the 16th century, a queen of the Vazimba people married a Hova man, and they had a son named Andriana Manelo, who would go on to become the combined people's king. Andriana Manelo then waged a series of wars that resulted in the Hova people becoming the dominant ethnic group on the island. Either he or his son would go on to call their kingdom Imarina, which is a name that is interchangeable with the Marina Kingdom. Andriana Manelo's rule was so successful for his people that the first part of his name would become the title of the nobility in the Marina Kingdom, the Andriana. 
The Marina Kingdom would continue to expand over the following generations, eventually taking hold of land that was occupied by other tribes. By 1824, nearly the entirety of the island was under the rule of the Marina people. But let's back up to the 1500s. At this point, just as the Marina Kingdom was getting its start, a new group of people arrived on the shores of Madagascar. Knock knock, it was the Portuguese. The Portuguese had beaten out the other European nations earlier when they discovered you could go around Africa in order to reach India, rather than deal with the Muslim kingdoms in between Europe and India or sail west like several other people had tried to do. Well, one Portuguese sailor, Diogo Dias, was sailing around Africa when his ship was blown off course and he ended up landing on the shores of Madagascar. After word of this new island that was said to be unknown reached Europe, even though it was known just by a name given to it in Arabic, the other European powers soon wanted a taste of Madagascar. For about 200 years, England and France tried and failed to make headway with the island. The somewhat hostile tropical environment and different diseases ravaged the Europeans as they tried to set up colonies on the island. Eventually, they decided it was useless to make permanent villages on the island and settled for setting up ports along the coast. This eventually backfired on the European merchants when Madagascar became a haven for pirates. While the pirates mostly stayed along the coast and some nearby islands, Captain Kidd was one such pirate, others managed to get friendly with the native tribes and eventually intermarried with the locals. Several ethnic groups on Madagascar claim ancestry through European intermarriage with the original tribes of African, Asian, and Middle Eastern descent. Along with intermarriage in coastal ports, the Europeans also brought firearms to the tribes of Madagascar. Since the marina people were centrally located on the island in the early 19th century, the British took a keen interest in that tribe. They supplied the marina with firearms and taught them British warfare strategies, thus allowing the marina to plow through most of their neighbors. This came to a head when King Andriana Poine Marina united his people after a period of civil war and conquered almost all of the island, with his son continuing where his father left off. However, the rule of Andriana Poine Marina would see the king bring a young woman into his family. And this woman would eventually go on to give Marina dominance a whole new meaning. Marina Valona, known in her childhood as Princess Romavo, was born around 1778, maybe 1780, to a Marina prince and princess, though they were not the children of the Marina king Andriana Poigny Marina. Her father was possibly the king's cousin. There are other historical sources that say her family was in no way a member of the Marina nobility. But it doesn't really matter what the history is of her family's social status. A little before her birth, Rana Valona's father learned that an assassination attempt was going to be made against the king. You see, Andriana Poigny Marina had come to power by dethroning his uncle, Andrian Jaffe. The king's uncle then rallied some forces that were still loyal to him and wished to see Andrian Jaffe put back on the Marina throne. Thanks to Ranavalona's father, the king had his uncle seized and put to death. Sometime later, possibly at her birth or a little bit later, Andriana Poigny Marina rewarded Ranavalona's family by having the young girl adopted into his family and betrothed to his son, Prince Radama. 
Some sources say Andriana Poini Marina personally adopted her as his daughter, while others say that the king had his sister adopt young Princess Romavo. The latter would certainly make things a little less weird and unlike the plot of Frankenstein. Yeah, Dr. Frankenstein married his adopted sister is pretty weird, but technically not the weirdest thing he does in that book. Upon the king's orders, any children Rana Valona and Radama had would be the first in line of succession to the throne. After Radama, of course. In 1810, when Rana Valona was about 20 and Radama was 18, the king of Marina passed away. Radama was declared the new king of his people, but Rana Valona was not necessarily his queen. She was just one of many wives the king had taken, even if she was his first wife. And again, any children they had were supposedly his rightful heirs. So, how did this pair celebrate this new occasion? Well, they didn't. In fact, Radama had many members of Rana Valona's biological family killed so they could not seek to become his political opponents. This was apparently a royal tradition in the Marina Kingdom, but still... While this may have left a very sour taste in Rana Valona's mouth, Radama went on to become one of the greatest Marina Kings in all of history. In fact, sometimes he's called Radama the Great. He would go on to modernize his kingdom by forming alliances with European powers. Remember earlier how I mentioned the British choosing to ally themselves with the Marina over other tribes? It was during Radama's reign that this happened. He was also the first man recognized by the Europeans as King of Madagascar. While Radama spent his days conquering his neighbors and buddying up with the Europeans, Rana Valona spent much of her time as his wife in the company of a man named David Griffiths. Griffiths was a Welsh missionary in Madagascar who was seeking to spread Christianity to the island. He, along with other missionaries, helped translation efforts between the natives of the island and the European merchants. Griffiths is also said to have translated the Bible into the Malagasy language, the language of the Marina, which would have been one of the first Bibles written in an African language. Griffiths and Ranavalona were said to be drinking buddies, enjoying rum as their drink of choice. The pair were never in any sort of relationship, but it was certainly an important part of Ranavalona's early days as it was possibly the first step in her long, tumultuous relationship with Christianity. Then, in 1828, King Radama the Great passed away. He and Ranavalona had never given birth to a single child. It seemed as if the throne would instead go to his nephew, Prince Rakatobe. If that was to happen, Ranavalona would slowly just fade into the background of Marina history. Well, we know Rana Valona did not go gently into that good night, so what happened next? The royal court was split on who to support in terms of Radama's successor. Yes, technically the throne should have gone to Rakatobe. However, King Andriana Poini Marina's rule of inheritance was still technically in effect. Any child of Rana Valona and Radama would be first in line to inherit the throne. Now, as I said, Rana Valona and Radama never had any children. However, there was a loophole to the rule that basically meant any child of Rana Valona would be first in line to be Radama's successor. Rumors quickly spread that Rana Valona was pregnant with Radama's child, a potential successor to the Marina throne. 
While the advisors of Rudama rallied behind Rakatobe, several chief military officials decided to throw their hats into Ranavalona's court. Obviously, the entire military beats out the ruling of several courtiers. On the 11th of August, 1828, Rana Valona had enough power to declare herself the Queen of the Marina people. This was the first time since the kingdom's inception that a queen would rule them, the last female sovereigns having ruled over the Vazimba people. Obviously, as per Marina tradition, Rana Valona had all her would-be political rivals sentenced to death. This included Rakatobe and the rest of the family of her former husband. A year later, she was officially crowned the ruler of Imarina. Rana Valona's early days as queen sought to bring a union between the older days of traditional Marina customs with the more recent years in which King Radama had reached out to European powers. In her official coronation, Rana Valona had a dress made in what was then the popular style among the French upper class. However, she received a second coronation behind closed doors that was said to follow the more traditional route, which involved being anointed with the blood of a bull. A few months after ascending to the throne, however, Rana Valona started making it clear that her reign would be different from that of her late husband and his father. She backed out of a treaty that had been signed with the British during Radama's time as king. This treaty had been a sign of friendship between the two nations, and it was a strong signal to foreign powers that Rana Valona was no longer looking to make Madagascar a safe place for Europe. Unfortunately, one part of backing out of the treaty meant that the Marina people would no longer receive guns from Britain. This would leave Rana Valona's people open to attack from other tribes on the island who still had access to European weapons. Also, it could possibly leave them open to attacks from Europeans. Now, I say possibly because in 1829, the marina managed to fend off a French attack on a fort along Madagascar's east coast. The French were forced to come ashore and engage in negotiations with one of Ranavalona's diplomats. By forcing these negotiations to take longer, the French were exposed to malaria. After suffering enough casualties to the disease, the French just up and left. But that was far from the only measures Rana Valona would take against Europeans and the cultural changes they had brought to her kingdom. While Rana Valona had fairly quickly made it known to European powers that they were no longer freely welcomed into her kingdom, she did allow one group to remain, British missionaries. After all, her friend David Griffiths was one. Radama had allowed the London Missionary Society to go about his realm and baptize his citizens, until the last couple years of his reign where he started viewing the Christian Malagasy people as a disruption to his reign. Like most things during her reign, Rana Valona initially went for the opposite approach. While Radama had started to forbid Marina Christians from going to church, Rana Valona relaxed that restriction. Soon, her citizens were being baptized in mass numbers. Citizens of all social rankings were now united under the new religion. It was only when the highest members of the aristocracy started joining in the Jesus party that Rana Valona started getting a bit hesitant. She had always stood for the joining of the new and the old. However, this growing wave of Christianity was starting to threaten any remaining hope for keeping the old marina traditions alive. 
In the autumn of 1831, Rana Valona forbade all members of the military and government who had converted from partaking in church services, including baptism and Christian marriage ceremonies. Only a couple months later in December, she extended that prohibition to all of her citizens. However, like most forms of prohibition, this only meant that people were continuing to break the rules in secret. Over the next couple years, more and more citizens continued practicing Christianity. In the hopes of getting her citizens to turn on the religion, Rana Valona started picking out random Christian citizens and having them accused of witchcraft. The accused were either exiled or forced to undergo a trial called Tangina. The trial of Tangena involved having a person accused of a crime ingest the nuts that grow on the Tangena tree, a plant native to Madagascar that is very poisonous. The trial involved ingesting the poison of the Tangena tree along with three pieces of raw chicken. If the accused successfully vomited up the chicken, they were presumed innocent. Should they die by the poison or fail to vomit up all three pieces of chicken, they were found guilty. The marina people viewed this trial as being judged by the gods. Even if it was well known that a person was innocent but they failed the trial, it was because the gods had deemed the innocent party was actually worthy of death. It's presumed that between one quarter and one half of the people who undertook the Tangina trial died. In the 1820s, about 1,000 people died per year from Tangina poisoning, which is still a lot. When Rana Valona began upping the game in the 1830s, that number of people tripled. In 1838 alone, it's said that about 20% of the population of Imarina, about 100,000 people, died from the Tangina trial. In February of 1835, in an official speech, Rana Valona formally declared the practice of the Christian religion illegal to all citizens of the Marina Kingdom. Foreigners were free to practice their own religions, but Rana Valona's tolerance for Christianity had completely fallen apart. However, even the tolerance for foreign practice was enough to make it known that Christians were not welcome in the Marina Kingdom. By the end of 1836, all the missionaries had left the island. Even her good friend David Griffiths refused to stay. Only one European dared to remain in the kingdom of Rana Valona. This man was not a missionary, but an inventor who would help build up Imarina into Ranavalona's powerhouse of a nation. Jean Laborde was born in France in the early 1800s. Sometime before 1831, he moved to India. While in India, he became a treasure hunter and sailed to search for sunken ships off the coast of Madagascar. Ironically enough, his ship would also end up sinking off the coast of Madagascar, but Laborde was able to swim ashore. There he was taken into the court of Rana Valona. As he was the son of a blacksmith and knew a fair bit about industrialization, Laborde was brought on as the queen's chief engineer. Originally, this meant that he was in charge of creating weapons, like muskets and gunpowder for said muskets. Once he had proven himself capable and loyal, Rana Valona allowed Laborde to lead a force of about 20,000 laborers to create all sorts of commodities for the kingdom. These included pottery, dyes, soap, cannons, candles, rum, and all other sorts of things that could help boost both the marina military and economy. It should be noted that almost the entirety of Laborde's laborers were forced into working in his factory. 
like many things during Rana Valeno's reign, you didn't really have a choice unless you wanted to be killed. This sort of harsh conscription was fairly common during Rana Valona's reign. It was mostly seen in practice with the Imarina military. With forced conscription, the queen was able to raise a standing army of over 20,000 soldiers. Rana Valona's army engaged in brutal efforts to take down surrounding tribes. Even if they did not formally bring some areas of the island into the kingdom, the military's scorched earth policy led thousands to die from famines. Those that were unlucky enough to survive subjugation were mostly sent into slavery. In the first 25 or so years of her rule, about 1 million slaves were captured and brought into the Marina Kingdom. It's estimated that during this time, about two-thirds of Ranavalona's capital city, Antananarivo, was made up of slaves. But even if you were a soldier, you weren't likely to fare better. Soldiers stationed in the lowland coastal areas of Madagascar had about a 1 in 3 chance of dying from malaria. It's said that about 4,500 Imarina soldiers died every year. Like I said in the beginning of the show, Rana Valona's harsh policies halved the population of her kingdom. And the wildest thing about all of this is that no one ever deposed her. Rana Valona ruled her kingdom for 33 years. We've mostly been staying in the very beginning of Rana Valona's reign, but let's talk about a wild story that happened in the middle. The year is 1845. For some reason or another, Rana Valona decided she wanted to go on a massive scale buffalo hunt. She invited several other nobles in the royal court to join her on this expedition. There were just a few caveats to joining. First, each guest had to have an entire retinue of servants and slaves. Second, they would not be packing any of their own food. And third, oh yeah, the hunt would last for four months. By the time everyone was gathered, the group numbered around 50,000 people. From the very beginning, the hunt was brutal and chaotic. Rana Valona decided that they would take the road less traveled in order to go hunt buffalo. And by that, I mean she chose to go on a path that just didn't have any roads. But God forbid the queen actually go through the forest without a proper path. In order to satisfy this wild demand, thousands of Malagasy's were forced to build a road for the hunting party to follow. Like I said, there was no food and the local jungle was a nightmare to work in. Unsurprisingly, thousands of people died just to build the road. But even if you didn't build the roads, you were not out of the weeds. Like I said, no food. In order to remedy this, the hunting party would stop at towns they passed by and cleaned out their food supplies. This left the people of those towns destitute, soon finding themselves starving to death in order to support the queen's hunting party. By the time the hunting expedition was called off, around 10,000 people had died due to Rana Valona's insane desire to hunt buffalo. And here's the craziest part of this entire story. It's recorded that not a single buffalo was killed during the entire four months. Even if her own citizens did not formally rise up to depose Rana Valona, that didn't mean others weren't looking to do so. 
The French were particularly keen on seeing the queen put out of the picture, though none of their previous attempts at seizing Madagascar had borne fruit. So instead they began plotting with Ranavalona's son, Prince Rokoto. Rokoto, son of Ranavalona and her prime minister, was much more like his mother's first husband, King Radama. The mastermind behind this plot was a Frenchman named Joseph Lambert who mainly did his business on the not too far away island of Mauritius. By this point, actually in the same year that Ranavalona went on her wild buffalo hunt, the queen issued a proclamation that all foreigners would be forced into unpaid labor if they did not leave the island. Unsurprisingly, this meant that many foreigners left Madagascar. Lambert reached out to Rakoto with a deal to rebel against his mother. After all, Rakoto had done his part to actively move against his mother's rule. He had freed people who were enslaved and was secretly a friend to Europeans. Lambert approached Rakoto with a treaty. However, the document was written in French which the prince couldn't read. In the document, it agreed to an alliance with the heavy caveat that Lambert was given first rights to plunder the island. Obviously, while orally translating the document, Lambert phrased this differently so it would be more favorable to the Marina Prince. Ricardo, despite signing the contract, was a bit wary of Lambert's true intentions. However, he cared more about his people than the fine details of the treaty. Unfortunately, a coup can't happen without a proper army to rise up. Lambert sought the most obvious ally he could think of, Emperor Napoleon III of France. By the way, this is not the really famous Napoleon, but his nephew. Unfortunately, Napoleon was not really looking to expand the powers of France at this time. This left Lambert to flounder across Europe looking for any form of alliance. During this time, Rakoto reached out to a British diplomat for assistance. Oddly enough, Lambert's treaty had said that France would not intervene in Malagasy affairs if the British did not give the okay on the coup, considering Britain held a lot of territory in Madagascar that was not controlled by the marina. Eventually, Jean Laborde, the industrialist who Rana Valona had given immense power, was also brought into the plot. Even though the group that was ready to upend Ranavalona's rule was fairly small, Lambert decided to YOLO it and started the coup in May of 1857. He entered the royal palace as a companion of Austrian explorer-slash-writer Ida Pfeiffer, who wrote down the events that followed. The coup spectacularly failed because, surprise, Ranavalona knew about the plot all along from her intense network of spies. Some sources even say Rokoto let slip the plan to his mother. Everyone involved was imprisoned, except for Lambert who somehow managed to get away safely. Rokoto, Laborde, and Pfeiffer were all eventually released from prison. Pfeiffer contracted malaria during her time in Madagascar and died the following year. Laborde was forced to leave the country and return to France, only finally being able to return after Ranavalona's death. Ranavalona could not be stopped. The only way her reign could possibly end was death by natural causes. And that's what happened when Ranavalona died in her sleep in August of 1861. She had ruled for 33 years. 33 years of tyranny, but 33 years of Malagasy independence.
Despite joining the coup against her, Prince Rokoto succeeded his mother as King Radama II. As King of Imarina, he reversed many of his mother's more austere policies. He once again opened the kingdom to outside influence. And unfortunately, this meant following the agreement he made with Joseph Lambert. France soon gained a massive foothold on the island, allowing it to become a French colony by 1896. It would eventually regain its independence in 1960. Ranavalona's reign was, probably obviously, looked upon as a reign of terror for most of the time after her death. It was not until recently where people started re-examining her time as queen. Because yes, obviously a lot of people died during her rule, and a lot of the time it was due to horrific policies she enacted. However, her isolationist policies managed to keep Madagascar from becoming a European colony much longer than the rest of Africa. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, most of Africa had become colonies of a few European nations. It was known as the Scramble for Africa, or sometimes as, perhaps more evocatively, the Rape of Africa. Almost every nation, except for really only Ethiopia and a few smaller areas, eventually fell to Europe. Nowadays, a vast majority of Madagascar practices Christianity. Obviously, that means they have very complicated views of the woman who tried to prevent that religion from expanding. Their views on her are very conflicted. Yeah, it was wrong of her to try to kill off Christianity. However, as I pointed out, she managed to keep Madagascar from becoming a colony during her reign. And also, I do want to say that even though the number of deaths in Imarina drastically rose after Ranavalona decided to take a more traditionalist approach to ruling, that does not mean that the traditional ways of the Marina Kingdom were violent or barbaric. She was just a woman who was paranoid about a new religion taking her power from her. Also, I'm amazed I've gotten this far without making a reference to the Madagascar animated movies, so I'd now like to move it, move it to the end of the show. I hate that joke. I'm leaving it in, but I hate it. I just want you to know that. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and follow the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're going to travel back to ancient China to cover the rule of the first man to rule over a united China. It's the story of the first emperor, Qin Shi Huang. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.